Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Conduct. I'm Eileen, and joining me as always is Colleen. How you doing, Colleen? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Uh, this is our second to the last episode of 2017, and we'll be taking two weeks off at the end of the year for the holidays. Misconduct will come back on January 4th, 2018, with our one-year anniversary episode. We also have a special announcement on next week's episode. We are so stoked and can't wait to share the news with you guys, but we're going to leave you with that little teaser for now. And now let's get into this week's case. This week we will be discussing Henry Lewis Wallace. Wallace is a serial killer who operated in Charlotte, North Carolina in the early 1990s. This is another case where we see how crimes are treated different across racial lines. Wallace's victims were African-American. He killed in the area for nearly two years before he was caught, but police weren't actively pursuing a serial killer until three days before Wallace was arrested. This week, we will talk about who Henry Lewis Wallace is, and more importantly, who his victims were, and how he was able to evade capture for 22 months. Henry Lewis Wallace was born on November 4, 1965, and he was raised in Barnwell, South Carolina, which is a small town with a population of less than 5,000. Wallace had a dysfunctional upbringing, and that would kind of come into play during the trial. He was born into a poor family. His mother, Lottie, basically raised herself after her mom died when she was young and her dad left shortly after. She gave birth to a daughter three years before she gave birth to Wallace in 1965, and Wallace's father was a high school teacher who was married and returned back to his estranged wife before he was born. Lottie raised her children on her own, and the three lived together with their grandmother, and she often argued with their mother. The family was very poor growing up, and they lived in a rundown house that reportedly didn't have electricity or plumbing. The neighborhood he grew up in was pretty rough. Even though the town was small, there was a high crime rate in the area that he was raised in, and he reportedly witnessed a gang rape when he was just seven years old. Horrible. Lottie worked long hours at a textile plant and was the sole source of income for their family. Because she was solely responsible for providing for the family, Lottie made her children grow up very quickly. She was known to punish her children severely and often, sometimes for seemingly small infractions. For example... When he was just a toddler in potty training, he started hiding evidence of his accidents because his mother's reactions and subsequent punishments were so severe. Wallace also said that if his mother was too tired to beat the children, she would make them beat each other, something that neither of them wanted to do. In addition to being a disciplinarian, Lottie had a mean streak. She would reportedly dress Wallace up like a girl and parade him around the town when he was just a child. 
Growing up, Wallace knew of his father, but had never met him. He bailed on him in Lottie before Wallace was born, and his mother didn't tell Wallace much about him when he asked. That changed when he was in the sixth grade when his father called their house out of the blue to introduce himself to Wallace. Wallace's father talked to him for a while and then told him he wanted to meet him in person. Promising to drop by sometime in the next week, Wallace grew excited. He always wanted to meet his father, and according to a later interview, he wanted to do the same types of things his classmates did with their fathers. The day after his father called, Wallace stayed home from school, waiting for his father to come. He watched every car and every person who turned down their street, but his dad never came. Wallace would later cite this as a pivotal moment that had a lasting impact on him, and he never fully recovered from the disappointment and hurt that he felt. Wallace enrolled in Barnwell High School in 1979, and despite his rough home life, he was well-liked at school by both classmates and teachers. School administrators described him as obedient and polite. Despite his athletic build, his mother did not allow him to join the football team, so he became a cheerleader. He was the only boy on the team, and the students loved him for it. After graduation, he went to South Carolina State College for one semester and Denmark Technical College for another semester. He failed out of both schools and started working as a host at a local radio station. He did well at the radio show. He was likable and funny. The show did well across the board with male and female audiences. But although he did well with the audience, he didn't last at the job very long before he was fired for stealing CDs in 1984. This effectively put a permanent stop on his fledgling career. Failing out of two schools and being fired from one good career left Wallace in a bit of a weird spot. You know, he was out of high school, but college was off the table. He found a good job that he liked and wanted to make a career out of it, but he was fired before it could really take off. In late 1984, Wallace enlisted in the U.S. Naval Reserve and was sent to Orlando, Florida for training. At this time, the military was heavily recruiting young men from poor neighborhoods to enlist as a way to kind of get out of their current situation. His record from his eight years in the Navy was spotless. It was noted that, quote, Henry Wallace was described as an outstanding seaman who willingly followed all orders given to him and accomplished his assigned tasks in a timely manner. It was noted that his knowledge level was higher than that of an expected seaman, and he was promoted to third-class petty officer. While serving in the Navy, Wallace began seeing his old high school sweetheart, Moretta. Moretta and Wallace had an off-and-on history going back to their sophomore year at Barnwell High School, and the two decided to get married in 1985. Moretta had a child with another man after high school, and Wallace adopted the baby with the intention to raise her as his own. Even though their relationship started out strong, it quickly soured. They had one child together, but Wallace wanted one of his own, and Moretta did not want to have another kid. This was ultimately the catalyst that led to the end of their marriage. While still married and in the service, Wallace started using drugs, specifically cocaine, and when he could no longer afford his habit, he started breaking into homes and businesses to pay for drugs. In 1992, he was arrested for burglary, and when the Navy got wind of his arrest, he was asked to leave. Since he had such an exemplary record leading up to this point, the Navy let him leave with an honorable discharge. Shortly after he was discharged from the Navy, his divorce was finalized. With nowhere to go, he moved back into his mom's house, who had relocated to Charlotte, North Carolina. He was unemployed and recently divorced with no immediate career prospects, so he started heavily using crack cocaine. 
He started taking jobs at local fast food restaurants and would get promoted to manager. These jobs never lasted long, though. Something would go wrong and Wallace would get fired or he would quit. He had another daughter with a girlfriend in September of 1993. Six months later, in March of 1994, he would be arrested for the murder of 10 women in the Charlotte area. So I wanted to bring up his past because while going through the research, I found it particularly interesting. He was a guy who, by all accounts, was really likable. And pretty much everybody said they liked him. And this was when they found out, you know, what he did. It was all just unexpected. He was sociable and personable. And then he went on to commit these horrible crimes. And no one who knew him saw it coming. And I think that's just kind of terrifying to think about. This man who was capable of so much evil was just blending in with regular people. Personally, I think you can start to see the cracks in his facade when he was in the Navy, though, because his drug use escalated to the point that he was burglarizing homes to pay for his habit. He seemed to work hard while in the Navy, and his record was spotless, and his commanding officers had nothing but good things to say about him, but then he essentially just kind of threw it all away and got fired. I personally think you can start to see the cracks in his facade when he was in the Navy, though. His drug use escalated to a point he was burglarizing homes to pay for his habit. He seemed to work hard while in the Navy, and his record was spotless. His COs had nothing but good things to say about him, but he essentially got fired again. I wouldn't necessarily say this would point to someone being a serial killer, but it's just interesting considering he was known by his friends and acquaintances to be easygoing, friendly, and helpful. But you know who else had that reputation? The Grim Sleeper. Yeah, definitely. He doesn't fit the, I guess, one of the stereotypical ideas of, you know, a serial killer profile. But yeah, I, I was also struck uh, by the fact that he, he went through the Navy and had such a successful career. That's not really an easy feat in the armed forces, I think, having, you know, such a spotless record. And yeah, he threw it away. It's pretty crazy how he goes from this successful career in a career that's really difficult and quite disciplined to, well, where he ends up. So next we will go through how his crimes unfolded and who his victims were. In the late 80s and early 90s, Charlotte saw an increase in crime, particularly violent crime. Although there was a notable increase in crime, there was no budget allocation for law enforcement. This was a period of time when investigations and criminal prosecution was falling through the cracks. There just wasn't enough law enforcement personnel to keep up. That is how Wallace began his murder spree undetected. The first Charlotte murder was the murder of Sharon LeVette Nance. In May of 1992, she was 32 years old, and she had had run into some trouble with the law in the past with drugs, and her family says that she fell into the wrong crowd, and that's when her trouble started. When she left her house, she told her aunt that she was going out with some friends, and she wasn't seen alive again. When her aunt didn't hear from her, and when Sharon didn't return her calls, she knew something was wrong. A week later, police found her body abandoned on the side of a rural road. When her family saw a news report indicating the deceased woman was in a black dress, they said they knew it was her. According to Wallace, he solicited Sharon for sex, and when it came time to pay her, he began to beat her. After he killed her, he left her body on a rural road near some railroad tracks. Once her identity was made public, there was heavy news speculation on the details around her death and her legal history was thrust into the spotlight. Her family was understandably very upset about this, and I can see why. 
to me, it seems like it takes focus off her as a victim and tries to explain how this murder was her fault or how her actions led to this murder, you know? Exactly. Friends and family knew her as someone who was an artist who liked to write poetry and loved her son very much. Her sister was quoted saying that regardless of whatever she had done, she was still the best person that I ever knew. Wallace's murder spree continued, and in mid-June of 1992, he struck again. On June 19th, Kathy Love received a call from her sister, Caroline's boss, at the restaurant they both worked at. He said that Caroline had missed a couple of shifts, which was very unlike her. He said that he last saw her 20-year-old sister a couple days earlier when she asked to trade a $10 bill for a roll of quarters for laundry. Kathy hadn't heard from her sister in a couple days either, so this call was concerning. She went to Caroline's apartment to check on her and found that no one was home. She called Caroline's roommate, who let her into the apartment, and they found a disturbing scene. There seemed to have been a struggle. Some of the furniture in the apartment was moved slightly, like someone tried to reposition it after moving it, but didn't do a good job. In Caroline's room, her bed sheets were removed from her bed, but they seemed to have been taken from the apartment. Her laundry, which she had gotten a roll of quarters from work for, was still in the dirty laundry basket. Caroline was last seen by her cousin the night she got the roll of quarters. He drove her home and watched her walk into the foyer. Any lead the police had went cold and no body was found. She was declared a missing person and it wasn't until Wallace's arrest in 1994 that her body would be found and her family would be given any closure. Friends and family knew her as a sweet girl. She had worked at the restaurant with her sister for several years and was well-liked by everyone. Co-workers got used to seeing her breeze in for a shift with her headphones on, blaring whatever song she was into at the moment. Police would later connect Wallace to Caroline Love through her roommate and his girlfriend Sadie. He said he knew that the apartment would be empty and he borrowed his girlfriend's key and hid in the bathroom. She came home and he came on to her. When she resisted, he put her in a chokehold. He then raped her and strangled her and wrapped her body in her bed sheets, the same ones that were missing from her house, and then he took her body to a remote wooded area and left it. Eight months after Caroline Love went missing, 20-year-old Shauna Hawk was late coming home. Her mother Sylvia was making dinner, and when she finished and Shauna was still not home, she began to get concerned. Shauna was a student at the local community college and was due home well before Sylvia would normally get home. When her mom found her purse and jacket in the house, she was really worried. There was no way she would leave the house without her purse or jacket, especially in the middle of winter. Sylvia called Shauna's boyfriend and the Taco Bell she worked at part-time and found that Shauna wasn't with her boyfriend and she wasn't at work. Calling around to relatives, she also found out that Shauna had not picked up her godson from school like usual either. At this point, Shauna's boyfriend was on his way to her house to help her mom look for her. As he searched the house, he went downstairs. Outside of the bathroom, he saw the carpet was soaked with water, and he went inside and found Shauna dead in the tub, which was full of water. Her cause of death was strangulation, and without motive or a suspect, her case went cold. Shauna was a mature and thoughtful girl from a young age. When she was 14, she lied about her age to get a job at McDonald's, and when she got her paycheck, she would immediately turn it over to her mom to help with the bills. She was shy and unassuming to those who didn't know her, but once you did, she was carefree and unpretentious. At the time of her death, she was putting herself through school and studying to become a paralegal. 
It turned out later that Wallace was her shift manager at Taco Bell, and the two were friendly. During interrogation, Wallace said that he had no intention to kill her when he stopped by her house unannounced. It wasn't until about an hour in she started teasing him about a fight he got into with his girlfriend, Sadie. Angry at what she said, he put her in a chokehold until she passed out and then put her in a tub of water. Before he left, he stole $50 from her wallet. And adding insult to injury, Wallace would attend Shauna's funeral. Four months after Shauna's case went cold, another employee at Taco Bell, who was usually dependable, missed multiple shifts in a row. 24-year-old Audrey Ann Spain was missing work and not answering her phone. Her manager and sister managed to convince her apartment building's janitor to open her apartment to check on her. It was there that they found Audrey strangled with her t-shirt and bra tied around her neck, and further investigation would find that she was raped before she was strangled. Aubrey was from a small town in South Carolina, the youngest of six. Her family was nervous when she moved to the big city of Charlotte. She had been living in Charlotte for three years and had originally planned to find a job working with computers. When that plan changed, she began working at Taco Bell while planning her next move. She became friends with a group of co-workers and their friends who became her core group of people. They were constantly doing things together like organizing barbecues and catching comedy shows. A co-worker later said that she was always trying to make you laugh or smile. This co-worker later said that it was their boss at Taco Bell that told her about Audrey's death, and this boss was Wallace. Wallace said that Audrey had just come back from vacation when he asked her if she wanted to hang out together. He came to her apartment and they smoked a joint. After they were done, he pinned her to the floor and demanded that she tell him where all her valuables were. He then put her in a chokehold until she passed out and then raped her. When she came to, she asked him just to let her go and he strangled her again, this time killing her. He stole her credit card, gas card, and other small items from the house before leaving. The next murder took place on August 10th, 1993. The fire department descended on 19-year-old Valencia Jumper's apartment after receiving reports of a fire inside. Investigators found the body of Valencia in her bed and something on the stove that had been left burning. Valencia was dead from apparent smoke inhalation, but friends and family doubted the story because there was no way she would forget to turn the stove off before going to sleep in her bed. Despite protests from the family, Valencia was declared dead from accidental smoke inhalation. It wouldn't be until Wallace confessed to the murder that her family would be vindicated. Valencia was a recent transplant from Columbia, South Carolina, and working at a grocery store to help put herself through school. It was at school that she met Wallace's sister and became her friend, and this is how Wallace met her, and he knew her for three years before killing her. Wallace said he stopped by Valencia's apartment that night after getting into a fight with Sadie. Claiming he needed someone to talk to, Valencia let him in, and he asked her to call Sadie to tell her he was there so she wouldn't worry. When she had her back turned, he put her in a headlock. He assaulted her and strangled her, and in an attempt to cover up his crime, he poured a bottle of rum over her and went into the kitchen. He opened up a can of food and put that on the stove and turned the stove on. Then he went back to Valencia's room and set her body on fire. Before leaving, he stole jewelry, which he later pawned. Wallace also attended Valencia's funeral as well. After this confession, Charlotte authorities revised her death certificate, and it wasn't until Wallace confessed that her death was listed as homicide and connected to the other killings. 
On September 15, 1993, 20-year-old graphic design student Michelle Stinson was found dead on her kitchen floor by her two young children. She was making good grades in her coursework and was well-liked by her teachers and classmates who admired her ability to do well in school and raise two kids. The day Michelle was found, her older son, who was three, knocked on a neighbor's apartment to tell them that their mom was, quote, sleeping on the floor. She was found strangled and stabbed to death, and the phone had been ripped from the wall. Michelle knew Wallace from the Taco Bell, so when he came over at 11 p.m. unannounced, she was surprised, but she didn't know him. He asked if he could come in and get a glass of water, and she obliged. Wallace admitted that he went to Michelle's house with the intention of raping her. When she had her back turned, he choked her and assaulted her, and after that, he went to the bathroom and strangled her again with a towel and stabbed her four times. With no sign of a struggle or forced entry, Charlotte P.D. hit a dead end. At this point, there had been multiple murders and disappearances of black women all within a five-mile radius. The community was understandably scared, but they were also angry. Police were making little to no headway in closing any of these cases. Furthermore, the community felt that the police department wasn't taking an active interest in solving the cases and called their approach lackadaisical. Police responded by appointing a new lead detective, but still no progress was made. Questions and speculations of a serial killer being active in the area were shut down. After Michelle's murder, the police and community caught a break. That only lasted five months before Wallace was actively killing again. On February 20th, 1994, 25-year-old Vanessa Mack was found dead in her home by her mother. Her mom had come by to pick up Vanessa's child so Vanessa could go to work at a local medical center. Her mother, Barbara, found the front door slightly open when she arrived, but no one seemed to be home. She entered and saw her grandchild sleeping on the couch, but no sign of Vanessa. She searched the whole house before doubling back to Vanessa's room, and that's when Barbara realized that what she thought was a pile of blankets was actually her daughter dead with a pillowcase wrapped around her throat. Vanessa was working to support her children, and according to her supervisors, she did well at her job and was particularly compassionate towards patients. She met Wallace through her sister in 1993. Her sister was an employee at Taco Bell where Wallace was her manager. He admitted that he killed Vanessa so he could rob her for money or valuables that he would then use to go buy more drugs. He raped her, then strangled her, and left her infant son on the couch. After Vanessa's murder, law enforcement and the community were afraid that the person responsible for all these murders was back and that they were no closer to finding him. Publicly, law enforcement downplayed a connection, but interviews after the fact show that there were suspicions from some investigators that the murders were related. Law enforcement wasn't waiting long for another murder. In fact, there were three murders between March 9th and March 11th, 1994, which is basically one a day. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On March 9th, Betty Jean Balcon missed her shift at a local restaurant. Her manager was immediately on edge because he had been in this situation before. Just two years earlier, another employee... Caroline Love had been reported missing after missing a shift at the same restaurant. A call to her house went unanswered. When Betty missed her shift again the next day, her manager called the police. A welfare check to her home ended with police finding 24-year-old Betty strangled to death on her mattress. She was estimated to have died over 24 hours previously. Friends and family say she was a joy to be around. She had moved up quickly at her current job and was made co-manager just a few months after being hired. Although the murder was similar, the crime scene was vastly different than Wallace's other murders. The apartment had been completely turned over and anything of value was taken. But this time, investigators caught a break. Betty's aqua-colored car went missing as well. Wallace later said that he targeted Betty because he figured, since she was a manager at her work, that she would know the safe code and he could force her to help him rob the restaurant. Betty was also a friend of Wallace's girlfriend, Sadie. He stopped by her apartment and asked if he could use her phone, and once she had her back turned, he attacked. Betty fought him off furiously, scratching and biting him. He choked her, raped her, and when she came to, he choked her again and killed her. He stole her car because he had recently totaled his, and he used the car to pawn the items he stole from Betty. Then he wiped the car down and abandoned it, but he forgot to wipe his prints off of the trunk. While police were processing the scene at Betty's murder, they received another call. A man called 911 because he came home from his overnight shift and found his girlfriend dead and 10-month-old son barely breathing. Their location? Just down the hall from Betty's apartment in the exact same complex. 18-year-old Brandy June Henderson's boyfriend had just come home from his work shift and found her strangled with a pair of shorts around her neck. Their young son had also been strangled, but he was breathing. He was rushed to the hospital where he made a full recovery. Brandy was known for being a sweet and caring person who loved her son very much. Her life wasn't always easy, but she loved her family and always worked to make the best out of her situation. At the time of her death, she was working on finishing her high school diploma and building a life with her boyfriend and their child. Wallace gained entry to Brandy's apartment because she knew him. Wallace was a friend of Brandy's boyfriend, so when he came by the apartment saying he needed to drop something off for him, Brandy didn't think anything of it. He shoved his way in and attacked her. He first had her bring him any money in the house, and then he raped her. When Wallace went to steal the TV, Brandy's child started crying, and Wallace panicked. He tried to choke the child to quiet him to give him enough time to sneak out of the apartment. At this point, the police were revisiting known associates' lists of the victims. With two murders in two days in one apartment complex, they were sure whoever the killer was, he was escalating. At this point, one name appeared on every list, Henry Lewis Wallace. In fact, they realized that they could even connect Wallace to Caroline Love, who at this point was still a missing person. With a named suspect, police sent out to find Wallace. 
They went right to Sadie, who was shocked her boyfriend was being accused of multiple murders. But the more they talked to her, the more the pieces began to fall into place for her, too. He had been giving her lots of gifts recently, jewelry, and some of it looked vaguely familiar, and then she would later realize that some of this jewelry belonged to victims that were also her friends. While law enforcement was still looking for Wallace, they got a huge break. Betty's stolen car had been recovered, and fingerprints on the trunk matched Wallace. Police staked out his house, waiting for him to come home, but he never did. Two officers managed to track him down at his friend's house on the evening of March 12, 1994. While Wallace was being booked into custody, Charlotte Petey got another call because another body had been discovered. Deborah Ann Slaughter was Wallace's final victim. She was approached by Wallace at her apartment. She had worked in the same restaurant as Betty and Caroline, so she knew Wallace, and when he came to her door, she let him in. When her mother entered her apartment, she wasn't immediately shocked at seeing Deborah lying on the floor. She had back issues and would often lie on the floor to stretch her back out. Once she realized Deborah was dead, she contacted the police. As soon as they arrived, they knew who was responsible. Deborah was 35 years old and the oldest of four. Her family loved her for her infectious laugh and called her the comedian of the family. Her 18-year-old son had recently moved from her apartment to break out on his own. Wallace asked her for money, and she said she didn't have that much. This angered him, and he took the $60 she had and then raped her and strangled her with a towel. Deborah fought him and fought hard. Wallace said she challenged him, saying she now knew he was the man that was going around killing women. He said he denied it, and she reached for a knife. They struggled, and he ended up stabbing her 20 times. Wallace's arrest was fairly uneventful. He went quietly and didn't resist. Once he was in an interrogation room, investigators asked if he knew why he was there. At first, he only admitted that he thought he might have been picked up for a burglary. Several hours into questioning, something changed and Wallace began talking. He confessed to the eight murders the police had connected him to. He also confessed to killing Sharon Nance in May of 1992 and Valencia Jumper, who had been previously thought to have died from smoke inhalation. Wallace was then formally Mirandized again and asked if he would record on tape his confession. He spent hours taking investigators through the details of each murder. He said he killed his victims mainly to rob them, but he also had violent sexual fantasies as well. All the while he was confessing to these atrocious crimes, he remained calm and even-toned. When he was done, he even said he felt a big weight had been lifted. When asked why he told them everything, he replied, I wanted to tell the story for a long time. If I wouldn't have told you, if I wouldn't have stopped, the killing would have continued and probably I would have killed myself as well. I've tried many times, but was unsuccessful. Police spent the next several weeks corroborating his story and building their case. By the end of the investigation, he was charged with nine counts of murder and various charges of rape, assault, and robbery. His defense team leaned heavily on his harsh upbringing for reasons for his crimes, but the jury did not find the defense compelling. Wallace was found guilty of nine counts of first-degree murder on January 7, 1997, and three weeks later, the judge sentenced Wallace to death. So for just kind of our final thoughts, God, yeah. this dude is just a real piece of work. His confession was so detailed and gruesome, and he really is one of the most yeah. violent, disturbing killers that I've read about. 
He preyed upon people who trusted him, and he used his ability to act personable and charming to make friends with his victims. I thought going into his background was interesting because he seemed like such a, you know, quote, nice person. But he had this dark, violent side to him, so his niceness was really just a cover. To me, it's interesting how he is able to hide that part of himself seemingly so well before he kind of unraveled. I think that the defense that he had a rough upbringing was a last-ditch attempt by his attorneys to try and get leniency or mercy. While I think there are circumstances where your past or your upbringing can explain your actions, I don't think that this is one of them. What he suffered paled in comparison to the pain that he inflicted on his victims and their loved ones. Exactly. But yeah, this guy, each time he killed them, it was the same. Rape, strangle, steal their stuff. And I'm just floored on how he kind of went sort of zero to 60, it seemed like. He must have always had this dark side. It's just, I guess it finally came out. I, I think this has to be one of the worst people we've done. He's up there for sure anyways. Like you said, he was cunning and knew how he could use his personality and relationships to the victims to his advantage and then brutally rape and kill them. It's just an awful motherfucker. Yeah, I, yeah, it's just terrible. <sighs> yeah. And then my kind of final thoughts on how the police handled the case. Mm. First off, obviously, I think we should talk about how we have another case where police missed all these signs pointing to a serial killer. Mm-hmm. There are just total parallels to the Grim Sleeper case for sure. Wallace operated for almost two years killing his acquaintances and police didn't really seem to realize the extent of it until his final three killings. I personally think the the reason Wallace was apprehended was because he went on a spree, basically. He deviated from his M.O. Not that he was particularly like a methodical killer or careful, Mm -mm. but unfortunately the women that he killed weren't high on Charlotte Police Department's priority list. Wallace and these women were African-American and they were from a working class area. And we've seen time and time again across the country that police departments fail in protecting this demographic. Wallace killed 10 women who lived and worked in the same area and they knew each other. Mm-hmm. He killed people who were coworkers at the same restaurants. And I mean, he killed some of his own employees that he supervised. Yeah. It's outrageous and upsetting that it took him going on a spree, killing three women in three days to catch him. And his final victim, Deborah, was killed less than 48 hours before he was caught. It just, it makes me sad and angry at the same time. Yeah, I know. I, my brain, like, short circuits reading this stuff. I mean, shit. First off, they couldn't close in on Wallace when all of his, his acquaintances were being found dead all over town. It's just crazy to me. Like, it would have been pretty easy to, like, oh, there's a common denominator, right? You know? I don't know. And I love when a victim's past is brought up or their circumstances are brought up, you know, and talking about them. I, that, that really bothers me when media does that or any, it just somehow like makes it their fault. And it's, I don't know, that always frustrates me. And it always seems to happen to a particular group of people. And then they were like snuffing out speculation of a serial killer when there clearly was one totally similar to the Grim Sleeper case. You have a man who was running around in a local area, killing African American women for years and in this case, they knew the killer. It wouldn't have been too hard to put them all together, I, I don't think. You know, that Wallace was like the common denominator if they bothered to, you know, investigate. But they weren't. And unfortunately, I think this is a case for so many minority victims. They aren't a priority. And that's just plain evil, I feel like. When your prejudice leads to negligence, that's blood on your hands, too. I agree. And that wraps up our show for this week. So thank you for listening. 
But we wanted to say thank you to some of our listeners who took the time to leave us a five-star review. Thank you to Emmy Canada and Amica Muller for your reviews. Leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts really helps the show out. Plus, we love to hear from you guys, so thank you. Our podcast recommendation this week is Crime and Color. Crime and Color is your weekly look at people of color in true crime, hosted by Kira. She's awesome, and her podcast is awesome. Yeah. And her perspective, I think, is definitely needed in the genre. Definitely. So check her show out on iTunes. She puts out episodes on topics and cases that I've never heard before. And she also covered Henry Lewis Wallace on episodes 8, 9, and 10, I think, of her podcast. So definitely check that out. I also just brought a Crime and Color mug last week. So I'm excited to get that in the mail so I can add it to my ever-growing collection of true crime podcast mugs. I just bought a mug, too, actually. Yeah, I'm excited. And you can hear her promo at the end of this episode, so stay tuned past the outro. And that wraps us up for another episode of Misconduct. Thank you so much for joining us. Head on over to our Facebook group to discuss this week's case. If you're not a member, join, and one of our mods will add you ASAP. We love to hear your thoughts and opinions on the cases. Hop on over and let us know what you think. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. We also want to give a huge shout out to the Blank Tapes for our intro and outro music, so be sure to check them out on Bandcamp to listen to more of their music. If you have a case suggestion, let us know about it. You can email us at misconductpodcast at gmail.com, and we will see you next week. Kiera, the host of Crime and Color, a true crime podcast that focuses on people of color. This podcast isn't only about serial killers or murderers, but it's also about forgotten victims who never got their stories told, people who survived impossible odds, the wrongfully convicted, as well as the monsters that you may not have heard about. Every week, I share with you an interesting case that has caught my attention in a hope to bring awareness to their stories. You can check out Crime and Color on SoundCloud, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you're feeling chatty, you can talk with me on Twitter as well at Crime and Color. Thank you guys for listening. And now back to the show. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.